Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tates Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Okay, we have, as you know, if you've been following along, we've been watching the story of Saul of Tarsus, better known as Apostle Paul, unfold over the last few weeks, and something that has not been discussed yet is Saul's conversion from the perspective of those he once persecuted. But I do want us to stop here for a moment and consider uh, that incredibly uh, complex dynamic to the situation. As we have seen, Saul has been wreaking havoc on the church before Jesus stepped in and changed his life. Chances are, if you were the small, the church was small enough at this point in history, that chances are, if you were among the early followers of Jesus, you had a family member or a friend, someone you cared deeply for, who was imprisoned or perhaps even executed because of Saul. You lived in fear of this man. Um, he is the source of your grief, the source of your anger. And then upon his conversion and repentance, you are asked to welcome him into your community. But it's not just welcome him. Saul, uh, Saul lost everything when he followed Jesus. He's on the run from the very community that once esteemed him as their leader. Now they want to kill him. The persecutor, now the persecuted. So where is he to turn in that? His former friends and even family would have want, wanted to have nothing to do with him. By tradition, they would have excommunicated. They would have shunned him and had nothing to do with him anymore. Um, he has lost all of his connections to influence and resources. Those are cut off and run dry. And so the only thing he has to do is turn to the community he once was trying to destroy hoping that they would extend to him the grace he does not deserve from them. Hoping that their, their one commonality in Jesus truly was able to overcome what seems to be impossible barriers. The, the passage may seem to be a continuation of Saul's story, but it's actually telling the story of the community that should hate him, but chooses instead to love him. I want to point one thing out from the passage before we look at the passage in greater detail. Just, just one grammatical observation that will help us see what Luke's trying to do here. 
I'm going to read portions of it, and you tell me who is the direct object of these verses. Direct grammar reminder. Uh, the direct object, so you got a subject, verb, and the direct object. So the direct object is what is being acted upon in the verse. Let me read some verses here, and notice who the direct object is. Verse 25, but his disciples took him, that is Saul, took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Verse 27, but Barnabas took him, that is Saul, and brought him to the apostles. Verse 30, and when the brothers learned this, they brought him, that is Saul, down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Saul is not the subject of our passage. Saul is the direct object of our passage. Saul is presented as this helplessly needy and dependent figure that the church is having to come around and rescue. The subject is the Christian community. What will the verbs of the passage be? Meaning, what will they do with Saul? What will they do to Saul? Will it be actions of anger, resentment, retribution, or whatever else you would expect? Amazingly, what we see unfold is the persecuted caring for their persecutor. It's a powerful passage that has much to teach us about Christian community this morning. Lessons that I believe the Christian community in our day is very, very desperate to learn, internalize, and apply. And I'm going to break it down in two ways. Very simple. We're going to look at the demand of community and the blessing of community. Let's start first with the demands, and they are many in this passage. Verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, that many days had passed is actually three years. We know that from Paul's own writings. Uh, But those three years were spent in relative obscurity. Um... As Saul is, he he is doing some ministry work, but for the most part, he is um, doing discipleship, contemplating uh, what he has discovered, exploring what he has discovered in his newfound paradigm that we looked at last week, this revelation that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. So we, we are fast forwarding quite a bit in Saul's story to the moment when he truly is uh, immersed in the fullest sense, to his newfound community. And by this time, the Jewish establishment obviously has heard what has happened about his change, and they have turned on him, and they are conspiring to kill him. The hunter is now being hunted. Verse 24, But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So he's trapped in the city with no way out because they are day and night watching the gates of the city waiting to ambush him, waiting to capture him and kill him. But then verse 25, but his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. What a poignant image. The great Saul of Tarsus, helplessly hiding in a basket, being lowered down to escape the very ones who used to revere him as their leader. It's almost humiliating. This great figure, so needy, helplessly hanging in a basket, being lowered down by his disciples. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, he speaks of it that way. He speaks of it 
as the, he uses this very instance to describe his own weakness. So certainly we could discuss how, thing, how much things have changed for Saul. The cost he now bears and so forth. He went from this hero and famous and powerful to in a basket being lowered down. But that's not, again, that's not what I want to focus on this morning. Not the cost of following Jesus for Saul, but the cost the community now bears. Make no mistake, if this escape is discovered, both Saul and the ones who are helping Saul will, um, will be executed. Quite literally, they are putting their necks out on the line for Saul. So, of course, it's a shocking development to see Saul's former Jewish community that once adored him now attempting to murder him. But even more shocking to me is to see Saul's new Christian community that he once tried to murder now risking their lives to save him from being murdered. And it's not just risking their lives and safety. When Saul comes to Jerusalem, they must risk the reputation for this man. Continue on verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. So Saul has fled from Damascus and comes to Jerusalem. And if you remember uh, what happened in Jerusalem, he utterly ravished and destroyed the church in Jerusalem. And this is his first visit back since that episode. And not surprisingly, the Christians there are nervous um, he persecuted them, and understandably, they are scared of him and doubting the sincerity of his conversion. However, Barnabas steps in and stands up for Saul in verse 27. But Barnabas took him. Again, this idea of Saul just kind of being moved around as this helpless, needy person. Barnabas took him and brought him to the, to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, if Saul tried to defend himself, defend his own honor, if, if Saul tried to explain, it, wouldn't have, it would have been met with uh, skepticism and doubt. But Barnabas, who had established himself as an early leader within the church, shares Saul's testimony for him. Barnabas defends Saul before the apostles. So in Damascus, the community risked their life for Saul. In Jerusalem, Barnabas risks his reputation for him. Essentially saying, look, I'm willing to put my, my name on the line here for this man. He's one of us. You can trust me. And Barnabas standing up for Saul at the risk of his own reputation enables verse 28. So he went in, Saul went in and out among, the, among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So he's fully welcomed into the Jerusalem community because of Barnabas. But this creates another situation where Saul is once again in need. Verse 29, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. The Hellenists were the ones that uh, stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church. And Saul was there with the Hellenists approving of his execution. Well, now these Hellenists want to kill Saul. Once again, the community comes to Saul's rescue. And when the brothers learned this, they brought Saul, him, Saul, down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. Now remember, Saul's lost everything to follow Jesus, his money, his relationships, his connections, his security, and all of it's gone. So for him to just kind of be moved about the ancient world to escape his own death would have come at great cost to the community's um, meager resources. So the point I'm trying to make here 
is that in the span of six verses, we have witnessed the Christian community risk their safety, reputation, and resources for their former persecutor. Now, we read that and we say, what a beautiful, beautiful story of Christian community. This is an amazing thing. But when we start to apply it, it gets convicting. Convicting when we take it out of the Acts context and seek to enact it in our context. You see, forget safety, forget reputation, forget resources. We struggle with the smallest inconveniences that community demands of us. We inhabit a consumeristic culture which far from challenging our proclivity towards self-obsession actually feeds it, perpetuates it. Meaning I am, because of the fall, I am naturally concerned about myself above all. And I inhabit a culture that seeks to prioritize me above all. And sadly, I think we must admit that this, is, this consumerism has bled into the culture of Christianity. Congregants are now consumers. Christians do not join community to give as much as we join to get. Our expectation is that the community orients itself around my needs, around my preferences rather than orienting myself around the needs and preferences of the community. Simply put, we expect, dare I say for some, we demand to be Saul in this passage, not the ones caring for Saul in this passage. Our expectation is to be the direct object of community. All about me. But this is not fitting the people of the cross. It could not be clearer from both the teaching and example of our Savior, that we are to be known first and foremost as a people who die to ourself for the good of others in general. But Jesus would say the community of his people specifically. We are that strange gathering of those who actually believe our Lord when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. But we need to be thoughtful in how we define that blessing. Yes, the paradoxical ways of Jesus prove true, and you've experienced that, that you are personally blessed by prioritizing others over self. That's the ways of the kingdom that the world doesn't understand, but it works. You are blessed when you prioritize others, but that's not the point here. The greater point and the greater motivation is the blessing that this will be for the community. So let's look at that. We've seen the demands of community. Let's look at the blessings of community. It's not a coincidence that Peter adds verse 31 as a closing commentary to this entire passage. And we are absolutely uh, supposed to see his connection. So after dealing with uh, detailing all that it cost the community to receive Saul into fellowship, Peter makes sure the reader knows the fruit of that sacrifice. And the fruit of this communal sacrifice is an outpouring of communal blessing. Verse 31. 
So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, that is essentially the entire expanse of the church at this point in the story. The entire church had peace and was being built up. What's so interesting about that description is that it seems contradictory. Would, would you, as an outside reader looking in, describe anything in our passage as peaceful? Now, from the outside looking in, the church had distress and was being torn down, but Peter says the church had peace and was being built up. And of course, what this means is that the community and the way that they have committed to this sacrificial love has discovered a blessed peace and strength that is not circumstantially dependent. They have an internal peace that is stronger than their external distress. Continue on. And walking in the fear of the Lord, rather than an unhealthy fear of persecution, they have a healthy fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, not comfort in prosperous circumstances, but comfort in the Holy Spirit. So walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, that is the church, multiplied. So the point that Luke is trying to convey here is that despite any and all opposition, the church defies worldly convention, not just by surviving this time, but actually multiplying. How so? What Luke wants us to see is that it is because the community has chosen to prioritize what Jesus told his people to prioritize, namely sacrificial love. Jesus has blessed his community, not with external prosperity, but with internal health. It's a healthy church. Verse 31 is a picture of a healthy community. The church had peace and was being built up. It was walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's the definition of a healthy church. And then, because healthy organisms always reproduce, that's the sign of health is reproduction, Luke concludes the passage by noting that the church multiplied. Friends, there is an enormous, enormous lesson for us, particularly in the climate of our day. Here's the application question I want us to wrestle with. Where is our focus? Here's what I mean. It seems to me that American Christianity has fallen into a disproportionate obsession of the external rather than the internal, both in its diagnosis of the problem and solution to the problem. Meaning this, if you were to superimpose the American church into our passage here, I think there would be an obsession over the external persecution they were facing as well as an obsession over external solutions and strategies as a response. So, for instance, churches in our culture are facing persecution by this emerging predominant, and it, it's true, this secular philosophy, ethic, agenda of our culture. We are not being imprisoned and killed, but we are being pressed to the margins of societal life, even facing the prospects of cultural obscurity, meaning you crazy, weird Christians, fine, we're not going to kill you, we're not going to imprison you, but y'all, we're not taking you seriously. 
It's this marginalization. What has been our response? It seems to me it has been a disproportionate obsession over these developments, meaning raging against our marginalization. Likewise, our answer, it seems to me, has been a disproportionate external answer. For example, just speaking currently, I, everybody's free to have their own opinions, but um, I'm a fan of, of uh, the Supreme Court nomination yesterday. That's great. But I also lament a church that sees itself and its flourishing and its well-being as dependent upon a Supreme Court majority. The point I'm suggesting is that in the face of persecution, we are disproportionately focused externally. Meanwhile, our churches are divided by the interests of self-centered consumers. The smallest inconvenience. The first time our needs are not met, our preferences are not prioritized, and certainly if we are ever offended, when the demands of community inevitably emerge, sadly, many of us just move on. What this passage is challenging us to do is flip our obsession. To become disproportionately concerned with the internal health of the church rather than external circumstances. To view the greatest threat to the church's existence not as an external enemy, but the potential of the enemy within, which would be me and you. Friends, it is clear in our passage, it is clear throughout Scripture, and it is proven true throughout church history, healthy churches multiply. No matter the opposition they are facing, healthy churches multiply. So let's get... Uh, let's get even more personal in application. Do you want to see the church in America, both the, both the big C uh, American church in general and the little C, Taste Creek Presbyterian Church specifically, do you want to see the church flourish? Of course you do. I know you want to see multiplication the church multiply. I know you want to see multiplication replace the current American trend of diminishment. Well, what if the answer to that starts with you? I believe that's how we should apply this. If both the problem and the solution are not external but internal then we need to recommit ourselves to becoming the healthy community that we, we see described in verse 31. This should be our passion and goal. And when I say we, I'm saying we here, okay? Uh, f- focusing on uh, the health of American Christianity is not our job. Uh, it's too big a task. Uh, it's <laughs> too much for us to focus. And it's easier, honestly, to focus on the state of American Christianity and not us. We focus on the health of our small little part of American Christianity. And when we narrow down the focus to TCPC, and I'm, I'm speaking primarily to uh, our members and um, regular tenders here, uh, if you're visiting, welcome. We'd love for you to be a part of our community. Just know this is, this is 
what we're signing up for. When we narrow down the focus to TCPC, it starts to get personal because now you can say the health of this local community does indeed depend in some part on you. I think this passage, rightly understood and applied, puts the focus on me. Will I pick up the demands of community, trusting it will lead to the blessing of this community? And the demand is very simple. I am not the direct object of TCPC. This place is not all about me. My wants, my needs, my preferences. Of course, if we all commit to this, then we will become a community. And, and we are, by the way. This is, this is me saying, thank you for being the community that you are. Let's recommit ourselves to it all the more. Because we are multiplying. We are healthy. People are sacrificing for the needs of the community. Let's, I'm, this, is, this is me saying to our church, let's keep going, friends. Even more so. Because when we commit to becoming a local community like this... The demand is simple. I commit to prioritizing the community over myself. Of course, if we commit to this, then we will be a community where when the time comes for you to be the direct object of of TCPC, meaning when you are in need, of course, this will mean that you will receive the need that that you need. And by the way, um, you will receive the care that you need. And by the way... um, Part of my hesitation with this application is some of you need to learn the humility to receive from the church, which for some of you, that's even harder. That's a sermon for another day. The greater point is that the only way we become this healthy community that is multiplying is that every member of this community lays down that natural tendency to be the direct object of the community. First and foremost, we are are committed to giving, not taking. First and foremost, we are committed to the preferences of the community, not my preferences. First and foremost, we are committed to sacrificing our time, our talents, our money, our resources to the community rather than the other way around. The application of that can be taken in many directions. Perhaps it means, we'll mention the Foundations Weekend. Perhaps it means finally not being a bystander to TCPC, but I'm all in on TCPC. I'm going to be at the foundations. I'm going to prioritize church membership. I'm not going to be the person who just slips in and out on Sunday and has no real integrated life within the community. Perhaps it means members. Perhaps it means prioritizing a parish group. Maybe you say, well, I don't really need a parish group. I'm happy in life. I don't feel like I need that community. Well, what if the parish group needs you? What if they need your voice? What if they need your friendship? What if they need your love? Perhaps it means finally tithing. Or for those of you with abundance of resources, giving above and beyond your tithe. I can't think of a greater application for prosperous America and a greater indication that I'm willing to die to myself for the needs of the community than in my generosity. Perhaps it means finding one need in the church that you know you can meet and saying, hey, I got this one. Nobody else needs to worry about it. I'm taking this up. I can go on and on. There are so many applications for the Holy Spirit to make, but this is what I know for sure. For a community to multiply, the community doesn't need improved cultural circumstances. The community needs to be healthy. 
For a community to be healthy, then every member of the community bears a cross. And the cross is fundamentally, I am not the direct object. I am not the one expecting the community to order itself around me. I order myself around the community. I die that the community might live. Brothers and sisters, if that's too much for you, then you've chosen the wrong Savior. Bringing us now to the table. Where is our motivation to die to self that the community might flourish? You know the answer. We are a people who follow a Savior who has done so on an ultimate level. What is the gospel that has captured us? What is the gospel that captured the community in our passage? What is the gospel that captured Saul of Tarsus on a Damascus road? It is the good news of a God who died to himself for the health of his people. And he was glad to do it. He was glad to sacrifice that we might flourish. He was glad to eternally give that we might eternally gain. He was glad to be the direct object of what we deserve so that we might become the direct object of what he deserves. Now, he doesn't ask us to pay him back, for we never could. But he does ask us to go and do likewise. He asks us to love as we have been loved. Let me pray for his help. Lord, for us to be a people that willingly give of our wants and needs that others might flourish, Lord, we need to be filled with your sacrifice on our behalf. We need to be filled with your grace. And so we trust the promise that you have given us that when we gather together, when we partake of this meal, that you are truly filling us in a spiritual sense with your love, with the sacrifice of your cross, that it might overflow to others. And so would you feed our souls now that we might be strengthened to love as we have been loved. In Jesus' name.